Here's my wife, Kathy, up here, for those of you who are visiting for the first time. Kathy, stand up. Go ahead, sweetheart. She's got a look at it. Come on, stand up, sweetheart. This is, this is the love of my life. Turn around. Let everybody see how cute you look. She's going to be mad at me. Come on, turn around. Show everybody how cute you look. See, if you, if you ask my grandson, Landon, how old Papa is, he'll say 64. You ask her, how old is Grandma? She's 39. You know, she looks 39, right? It's amazing. I love you, baby. All right, so this is my wife, Kathy. And my wife's uh, grandfather, <laughs> uh, his, uh, his name was Giacomo. Uh, he uh, was a little Italian guy. I mean, l- literally, he was about th- this big, right? And uh, interestingly, his wife uh, was about this tall. and made some pretty interesting wedding photos, you know. But, but anyway, uh, Giacomo was, uh, by, uh, by profession, he was an artist and uh, he was a professional painter. Back in the day when they used lead uh, in paints and as a result of occasionally getting uh, paint splashed, in his eye, he, he li- literally went blind. He was completely blind in one eye and almost totally blind in the other eye. And, and he would say about his condition, if people would, would, would ask, he would say in his broken English, he would say, I no look a good. Which has other implications, which, which probably is also true. But, but, but he would say, I no look a good. Now, I just want you to know, I have borrowed that humorous, to me it's a humorous kind of a statement. I've borrowed that statement on a number of occasions. Because when I was about seven years of age, my parents found out that the optic nerve in my right eye had not fully developed. As a result of that, uh, when they found that out, they took me to, to doctor after doctor, specialist after specialist. And uh, quite frankly, it was, it was too late to do anything about it. And, and, and they, they had, you know, they were filled with hope and, and a desire to see, you know, uh, their son be able to see. But, but my, my, my diagnosis was that, that I was uh, legally blind in my right eye. It was some astronomical number, like about six or seven hundred sight in my, in my right eye. So, uh, I just want you to know that, that, that they carried with them, especially my mom, you know, kind of felt, you know, guilty that it hadn't been discovered until I was seven years old. Uh, had I been, uh, had it been discovered when I was about five or maybe six years of age, that there may have been time enough to correct the problem. And, and what they tried to do anyway, but it was too late, was to force uh, my, uh, my, my right eye, which, which had the problem, uh, to see by covering my good eye. And, and I had to walk around and, and you know, uh, but it was too late. And, and so I only came to realize that the amount of, you know, a kind of responsibility, burden, the guilt that, that my, my parents kind of felt. That, listen, who, who hasn't felt, you know, at one time or another as a parent that, you know, you're the most terrible parent in the world, you know, or, or, or uh, what if, you know, or you've had regrets, you know, about certain things that you've done or didn't do, you know, and uh, as, as a result of that, you know, it was too late to do anything about it, so I know, I know, look a good, so just, just want to let you know, Paul, if I miss the softball once in a while, there's a reason, it's because I know look a good, <laughs> you know, but, uh, Seriously, I, I want to talk to you this morning about a subject that, that we all know about. But, but if you're here today for the first time, I don't know, I see maybe a couple of people I haven't seen before. We just want you to know that we're, we're so glad that you're here. 
uh, today and that you're taking a chance and a risk on being uh, with us in this service. Just want you to know, just want you to relax. We do not handle snakes in this service. No, the children are, are taking care of that da- downstairs, you know. No, seriously, we, we, don't, we don't do snake handling. We won't bite, you know, but, but we want you to know this, is that we all struggle with the same kind of temptations and trials and difficulties as everybody else. But what we've discovered is that Jesus is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And as a result of that, we can put our confidence in him that he is able to help us in all of our circumstances, in all of our situations. Despite of what somebody may have told you, the Bible doesn't say that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, the Bible says the opposite is true, that really God helps those who can't help themselves, that he, he, he does for us what, what we can't do for ourselves. And in fact, he also has some amazing things in store t- for us beyond what we could ever ask for or imagine or think. So this morning, I want to talk to you about this familiar subject that all of us are really acquainted with, and, and that's with guilt. And now I know I'm talking to you about attitudes in this series. This is part four of our series, and we've been talking about attitudes over the last several weeks. And, and while guilt is an emotion, it's one of the strongest human emotions that we can experience, and while guilt is not an attitude in and of itself, guilt has a, a tremendous impact upon our attitudes, it has a tremendous influence, and, and it can distort, and it can shape the attitudes that we have. And what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we've been making a case for just how important attitudes are to affect the quality of our life. And what we said last week was that attitudes are the grid or the lens through which we, 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 we look at the world or, and the world looks at us. And so that's why this, this message, this series, I believe, is so important for us to, to not only make the point about attitudes, but to find out how we can have the right kind of attitudes. Guilt uh, has a way of so affecting our perception, our sight, that, that some people, quite frankly, no look a good as a result of being burdened by, by guilt and condemnation. Uh, when the disciples of Jesus came across uh, a fellow who was born blind. Now, now imagine this. Here's a man who had been blind all of his life. He had been blind from birth. When they came across him, they asked Jesus this question, whose responsibility was this? Was it, was it this man who had, who had committed a sin or what is, this, is it his parents that they sinned that this man should be born blind? Now, I don't have the time to go into the implications of that because it's really kind of bizarre to think that is it possible for, a, for a, an embryo in the womb to have sinned to, to result in this consequence of, of, of being born blind. And of course, you know, we're not going to go in that direction. But, but what I do want to say is this, is that their understanding of, of, of guilt and, and punishment, crime and punishment, was distorted. And it was distorted to the point where they needed to be corrected. And so Jesus kind of puts uh, an end to that, that speculation by saying neither this man nor his parents sinned that he should be born blind, but that the power or the glory of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus went on 
to, to bring healing to the man, and, and he became a follower of Jesus, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and you know what? It, it's kind of something that happens to every follower of Jesus, that the, one of the first miracles that begins to happen in our life is that he opens up the eyes of our understanding. He opens up our heart to see what we didn't see for maybe so many years before. Some of you may, maybe have come to Christ later in life, and, and for all those years, there was a spiritual blindness. You know, the hymn writer said, I once was blind, but now I see, was lost, but now am found. And, and that spiritual sight is one of the things that God wants to do for, for every single one of us. Man's view of, of guilt and condemnation and shame is many times distorted. Think about the case of uh, Job. Uh, Job called his comforters, the, the people who were supposed to encourage him, he called them miserable comforters because what they did was they just they heaped guilt and condemnation or they tried to heap guilt and condemnation upon him because this is how they judged the situation that, that Job... Job was suffering financially, he was suffering physically, he was suffering socially, emotionally in his family. And all of these things that were happening to Job were obviously Job's responsibility. There was some secret sin in his life, and as a result of that, therefore Job was reaping what he sowed, or he was was being punished by God. But but God rebuked those those, uh, foolish, uh, miserable comforters because they didn't have all of the facts. They didn't have insider information as to what was really going on behind the scenes. And as a result of that, their perception of guilt and responsibility was distorted as well. There's one more illustration that I wanted to point out to you. And and I've always been fascinated by the healing of the paralytic man uh, in the gospel. It's found in Mark chapter two, if you'd like to read that later on. But uh, you probably are familiar with the story. There's four friends who are carrying their friend who's a paralytic. He can't walk, right? He's paralyzed. And so they, 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 they come to a meeting where Jesus is, but they can't get into the meeting because there are crowds even outside the door, right? And so they, they, they begin to unearth or unpack uh, the roof, and they let this, this man down on a stretcher right into the midst of the meeting. And, and what is so fascinating to me is the, is the thing that Jesus says to the man. He says, listen, listen to what he says. He says, son, your sins be forgiven. Son, son, your sins are forgiven. Not, not, son, you are healed, but son, your sins be forgiven. Now, of course, everyone that was in there was kind of shocked, and, and, and they began to say to each other, who does this man think that he is? Only God can forgive sins. No argument there. But that's exactly who was standing in their midst. And so, so Jesus, to demonstrate that he had not only the power to heal, but also the authority to forgive sins, he was going to demonstrate that, you know? And I just, just want you to think about this for a minute. Here's a man that, 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 that needed to be healed physically, but Jesus believed, knowing what was in the hearts of men, I believe that Jesus, Jesus understood something about this man's psyche and something about his conscience that needed to be healed first. And so Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, now I got to tell you that over the years being in the ministry, I've, I've met folks that I've sat down and talked with and cried with 
who, who were unable to receive forgiveness and who were even unable to forgive themselves. Now, I just happen to feel that I've, I've met this man before. I, I've spoken to people just like this before who, who needed to have their conscience cleansed. And I believe that, that Jesus, listen, not only in this example is demonstrating for us that he not only cares about our physical well-being, but he also cares about our conscience. He also cares about this thing called guilt and condemnation and shame. And he came for this purpose, that we would not only be delivered from the penalty of sin, not only delivered from the consequences of sin, but that we would even be set free from, from the guilt and the condemnation and the shame that is associated with being born into a sinful world. That Jesus himself took our sin, but he also took our shame. Did, did you know that Jesus was crucified naked upon a cross? That the shame that we deserve was, was to fall upon him so that we would be set free and liberated from that. I want you to think about this with me this morning. And, and in various degrees, it's, it's not only people, listen, who can't forgive themselves or, or who can't receive forgiveness, but, but I think all of us at, at some point or another, you know, when, when, when life gets difficult, when the car breaks, when the cesspool overflows, when you lose your job, when your kids get sick, when you get sick, when, when the, the marriage turns into divorce, when you don't get the promotion. I mean, I can go on and on. That one of the first things that, that we begin to think about is the things of, in our past. I don't know if it's, if it's just our conscience or sometimes it's, it's, it's the, the enemy. You know, David said, many there be that rise up against me. Many there be that say of my soul, there's no help for him in God. Listen, that was not only coming from, from other people who were saying because of your circumstances, you know, God is against you, but we have an adversary who goes about, who, who whispers in our ear that God's not for you, that God is, is against you. And one of the first things that, that, that begins to happen to us is we begin to remember. Ironically, we don't remember what we had for lunch yesterday, but suddenly all of these memories flood back into our mind about things that we did in the past, things that we regret, things that that we know were wrong, things that we, we thought were covered when we asked for forgiveness. And they flood back into our minds and we begin to think, well, maybe, maybe this is payback. Maybe this is karma. Maybe this is what goes around, comes around. Maybe this is whatever I've sowed, I'm, I'm now reaping. And, and you cannot help but think that, and plus the fact that we have an adversary who is called the accuser of the brethren. And one of the greatest weapons that the enemy has learned to use against the children of God is this thing called guilt, shame, and condemnation to prevent us from, from going forward, to prevent us from being all that we can be in God. And as soon as we step out in faith and try to serve the Lord, or as soon as we step out in faith and, and try to be more, more in love with the Lord or devoted to him in some way, some of these things begin to resurface. And we feel the breath of the serpent bringing condemnation against us. Now, I, I want you to know that this is how guilt can influence our attitude. Attitudes 
It's a different subject, you think. No, it's not, because this is, this is what begins to shape and sometimes distort and even, and even to influence the attitudes that we have. Here's a statement I want to share with you this morning. Past failures can never derail our future in God when we have the right attitude. I believe that with all my heart, that past failures cannot derail our, our future in God when we have the right attitude, when we have the right belief system. Now, remember I said last week that attitudes are the grid. It's the lens through which we see the world and we see ourselves and, 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 and the world sees us as well. And so we need to have the right attitude. You know, the Bible says that if we're followers of Jesus, if we confess our, our, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to cleanse us from unrighteousness. In fact, there's a great verse in the book of Micah, Micah 7, 19, I think it is. It says where, where God will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And somebody said that at the water's edge, he posts a big old sign that says no fishing ever allowed. He says, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. So if God says, I'm not going to remember your sins and your iniquities anymore, then why would you want to bring them up? Why would you want to bring them and recall them into your consciousness? And the fact of the matter is, is that God wants you to be set free from that. Seems to me that the Apostle Peter had one of the biggest public failures of all times. He boasted that though everybody else would forsake Jesus, that he would not. He would, he would rather die with Jesus than than ever deny Jesus or forsake Jesus. And we know the story. He denied him three times, just as Jesus had predicted. And as a result of that, listen, as a result of that, Peter's, Peter's sorrow broke his heart. But, 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 but the lesson of Peter, the message of Peter is that there is restoration, that your past failures cannot derail you from your future in God when you have the right attitude. And somehow Peter got a hold of the right attitude and had his conscience cleansed because of the sacrifice of Jesus. As a result of that, I think the, the message of Peter is that, is that he, he, here's a guy who we can say was, was the comeback champion, was the comeback kid. You know, the message of Peter was simply this, that failure is not a person. Failure is an event. And as long as you remember that failure is an event and not a person, then you are not a failure. And as a result of that, you can have a transformed attitude. In fact, that's the very thing that we need. And, and, and Paul said that in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's around verse 23. He said that we need to put off the old man and we need to put on the new man, which is created in true righteousness and godliness and be renewed, he says, in the attitude of your mind. That's where we need to change. And I want to I want you to know that the way that we change our attitudes is by believing the word of God. Now, I want to show you this morning a great portion of scripture that I believe is going to help transform the way that you think about this whole issue of guilt and condemnation. It's one of the greatest examples in the New Testament that it happened as an event in the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to unpack that this morning, beginning in in, I'm sorry, in John chapter 8 and verse 2. It's a familiar story, so we, we can uh, 
just really zoom right in and, and, and without too much of a background. It says this, and I'll read verse 2. At dawn, the beginning in the morning, Jesus, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So Jesus is teaching, he's instructing them, he's sharing, he's sharing his thoughts with them. But the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Now, let me say this. The act of adultery, right, is, was punishable by, by death. And they brought in one woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now, I don't know about you, but I always thought it takes two to commit adultery. But they've only got one, and they've only got one woman. And to me, it kind of seems like, well, I want to know where is the guy. But, but also, what I perceive is that this is a setup. Jesus is being set up by this whole scenario. They are trying to embarrass Jesus in some way to catch Jesus, to accuse. I mean, this was, this was constantly taking place in the Gospels, that they were trying to entrap Jesus in some way. In fact, one of the next verses that we're going to look at says that. They thought in their mind, we have an unsolvable dilemma. There is no way he's going to be able to get out of, out of this, right? So they said to Jesus, verse 4, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, now understand the scenario here. What is Jesus going to say? In fact, what we discover is that Jesus remained silent for a good period of time. Now, now the reason why they, they thought the, the, themselves real proud, we got him now, right, is because Jesus has gone on record. He, he has been t- titled and called the friend of sinners. Now, how are you going to be a friend of sinners now if this woman is going to be stoned to death? And he's gone on record as saying, I've not come to call the righteous to repentance but sinners. He, he's gone on record as saying, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I've not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. I haven't come to condemn. Now, now Jesus, what are you going to do with this woman? But on the other hand, because they thought they were so clever, Jesus also went on record as saying, don't think that I've come to destroy the Lord and the prophets. I've not come to destroy the Lord. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, I've come to uphold the, the laws of God, the laws of Moses. They are righteous and they are good and they're holy. And that's what Jesus had taught. So now, how is he gonna respond? Because no matter which way he responds, we've got him in fact Because Jesus remained silent, they were emboldened. They thought, we've got him now. His silence is going to be an embarrassment to him because he doesn't know know what to say. I want you to notice this, that he ignored them for this purpose, to refuse to answer them. At this point, was not a refusal to answer the charge. I want you to think about this as a problem. It was not only a problem for the woman, is a problem for us. You see, this woman is us. You see, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. She's not the only one that's guilty of having broken the commands of God. Every single one of us have. The dilemma that she found herself in is the dilemma that we find ourselves in. 
if you ask for, for mercy, you can never ask for justice at the same time because justice and mercy, are they clash. And it seems to me that this is not only a dilemma or a problem for the woman and a problem for us, it's also a problem for God. See, how is, how is, how is God going to harmonize justice and mercy together? They're, they seem to be inconsistent. And so, on the one hand, the law of righteousness demands that there should be punishment against anyone who commits an infraction against the law. To set aside the law is to, is to invoke anarchy. I was thinking about this uh, event that happened this week. Um, it was at a sporting event. Now, now I tell you, at, at our last softball game, uh, I wanted to say something to the umpire. I wanted to say, do you go to their church based upon the last call that you just made? But I didn't say it. I, I asked the coach, is, is it okay if I say that? And he said, no, you can't say that. But this week, there was a, a young man who was so angry at the umpire that he hit him in the head and he knocked him to the ground and the man's head, his brain began to swell. He's in a coma today. He died this morning. Now, listen, if society doesn't bring down punishment upon the young man who did that, we would be promoting anarchy. And so, and so justice has to be served. It has to be served in society. It has to be served in, in, in God's realm of the kingdom. And so how is justice going to possibly be served in this dilemma that we find ourselves in as well as this woman who is obviously guilty and we're obviously guilty? How is God going to solve the problem? Well, human wisdom could never figure out the solution to the problem. The scribes and the Pharisees, they couldn't see a problem. In fact, I want you to know that even Satan himself could not understand that there would be a solution to this dilemma that we find ourselves in. But I want you to look at this. Verse six says this, but Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Jesus writing on the ground. There is nothing that happens in scripture that is superfluous. And what Jesus was doing was, listen, it, it, it ought to remind us of something back in the Old Testament that, that Moses had received the law of God having been written with the finger of God. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, you talk to me about the law. It was my finger that inscribed the law upon tablets of stone with the very finger of God. You speak to me about the law of God. So verse 7 says, so they kept on questioning him. They kept on questioning him. They were now emboldened by, by his, his, his silence as he's just writing on the ground, doesn't answer them. You know, they, they, they were just as clueless as to what Jesus was doing by writing on the ground with his finger as, as a king back in the Old Testament named Belshazzar was when there appeared a hand writing upon the plaster of the wall. Just as clueless. So verse 7 says, so they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and he said to them, 
If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So he, he, he speaks. and says, okay, you've got stones in your hand right now. The one who is without sin, let him be the one to cast a stone. And in this, Jesus shows just how inadequate they were to bring an accusation against that woman. In fact, it shows us just how inadequate Satan is to bring an accusation against us as well. He is not guiltless, but he is, he is taking that position to be the accuser of sing, every single one of us. And again, it says in verse 8, he stooped down and he wrote upon the ground. He, he did this a second time. And interestingly, and again, nothing is, is there by chance or by coincidence in Scripture. He's writing upon the ground a second time. Why? Because the tablets of stone that God gave to Moses in which he wrote with the finger of God was, was broken by Moses. Remember when he came down from the mountain and he saw the, the wickedness of Israel. He broke those tablets of stone. And so God gave him those tablets of stone a second time written with the finger of God. But what happened to those tablets of stone? They were put in what was called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there was a cover that came between the broken law and between the people. And what came between the broken law and the people was called the mercy seat. And upon that mercy seat, there was the shedding of innocent blood. And even so, by the gesture that Jesus was making, was that he was indicating the manner in which God would solve the problem. That coming between the broken law and coming between God's people would be the shedding of innocent blood. That he himself would give his life as a ransom for many. And so it says in verse 9, At this, those who heard began to go away, being convicted in their conscience, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, and the woman still standing there. Now I want you to know, at that point, she was free to walk away. There was, there was no one left to accuse her. All of the witnesses against her walked away. She's, the, she's, she's there and, the, and she's there with Jesus. They became speechless. There was none left to accuse. Now what I want you to know is this. If there's no one to accuse and the, and the accusers also had to be, or the witnesses also had to be participants in carrying out the execution. So it says in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, where are those who condemn you. And she says, none, Lord, or no, sir, none, Lord. She's, then he says, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go, leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. In fact, those are the very same words that Jesus says to every would-be follower. He says to us, go and sin no more. It is on the basis of, listen, the only hope that she has, the only hope that we have is that we would have a salvation on the basis of grace, that God would do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that God would do above and beyond whatever we could even think or imagine. And in this way, in this way, in this example, Jesus did not take away from the holiness of God or the law of God. But neither did he condone the, the acts of the woman. 
He said, woman, where are those that accuse you? There are none, Lord. Then neither will I condemn you. The law at that moment became powerless because the accusations and the witness against, against us was taken out of the way. And because there is none to accuse us, therefore the law is rendered powerless. Neither do I condemn you. Sweeter words has no guilty sinner ever heard then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. She stayed there because, and she said in the translation that I used didn't really bring that out as well, but she called him Lord. At that moment, she became a believer that Jesus, in fact, was the Messiah. What I want you to take away from this meeting this morning is simply this, that faith sets us free from guilt and condemnation. That it's our identification with Christ that sets us free from sin and, and, and condemnation. But not only that, from the guilt and the shame that we once carried as a result of things in our past. That our past cannot derail our future in God when we have the right attitude. And this is the attitude. And I want to tell you this, that there is no, no greater compelling motivation than to know that that we are clean before God, that he looks at us as being beautiful, that he looks at us as the righteousness of his own son. There's nothing more motivating that can set us free when we reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin and alive unto God. That enables us. That is the power that sets us free so that sin, listen, the power of sin is broken. The penalty of sin has been paid for. The pleasure of sin has been removed by, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, ultimately, the thing that we long for, the thing that we struggle with now is that there will one day be a deliverance from the very presence of sin. That sin will be no more in this universe, in our world, in our existence. That, that, that it will be completely around, that he has abolished death and sin forever and forever. The sweetest words I've, I've ever read, Romans 8, verse 1. Now there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now. And I think, I think Paul wanted that word to be stressed now, in this life, now. But not only now, forever. There will never be condemnation for anyone that is in Christ Jesus. The issue of accusation has been dealt with. Who is going to bring a charge against God's children? It's God who is the one who justifies us. Is it Jesus who's going to condemn us, who has died for us, yea, rather, who has risen again from the dead, and is at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us? The, the, the reasoning, the, the logic behind this truth is simply this, that if God did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with them also freely give us all things? And the all things that God wants to give us this morning is so that we have the right attitude, that we see ourselves as God sees us, that our attitude is no longer shaped and, and deformed by guilt and shame and condemnation, even for the little things that we've done. Somebody said it this morning in the worship part of the service, that our sins have been forgiven past, present, and yes, and even future. And yes, I could say that with absolute assurance, knowing that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness, that it's the grace of God that empowers us to walk away from sin. 
because we're no longer under the law, but under grace. I want you to think about this uh, former slave trader by the name of John Newton. You probably heard him. He, he, he wrote one of the most uh, well-known, recognizable, beloved hymns of all times. He said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And, and the wretch of, of his past, not only was he a slave trader, but he was a, he was a shipman and he was a drunk. And, and one of the things that, 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 that I read that John Newton said was about, I sinned with a high hand, he says, and I made it my study to tempt and to seduce others. He wasn't satisfied with just sinning himself. He, he, he was not satisfied until he got as many people as possible involved in his sin as, as possible. But somehow, listen, could you imagine the amount of guilt and shame must have been in his past having once been a slave trader, having known that kind of a debauched life? And yet, and yet John Newton must have come to to believe that what Jesus said was really true. Come unto me. If you're burdened and heavy and, 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 and just burnt out, you, you're bearing this load of guilt, come unto me and I will give you rest. I think John Newton found rest. He, he later became a preacher, as you probably know, songwriter, hymn writer. Toward the end of his life, the last couple of years of his life, I think that we could say that, that, that John no look a good. He lost, he lost his, his sight. His, his eyes were dim, and a friend of his would come by every morning, and they would have devotions together. His friend would read the scripture, and John would make comment, and they would pray together. And on this one particular occasion, when they were coming across this verse of scripture, John remained silent for what seemed like a very long time. By the grace of God, I am what I am, was the scripture, and John just, just froze just thought about that. And when he spoke, he said this. He says, I'm not what I ought to be. How imperfect and deficient I am. I'm not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I cleave to what is good. I'm not what I hope to be. But soon, very soon, I will put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be and not what I wish to be and not what I hope to be, I can truly say with the apostle, I am what I am by the grace of God. So many of us in this room this morning can say, not what I want to be, not what I ought to be, not what I hope to be, but I am what I am, by the grace of God. Listen, do not let, do not let condemnation and shame and guilt hold you down, keep you from being devoted and fully a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus not only died for the penalty of your sins, but he died to set you free from its guilt and condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, never will be condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And how, how willing is he to forgive us of our sins? One man, 
One man simply said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, in response to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. How quick God is to forgive us. He doesn't sweep it under the table. Doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He paid the price in full. And the price that was fully paid was the death and the life of his son. What I want you to know this morning is that whom the Son has made free is free indeed, and faith sets us free from guilt and condemnation. When we are united in Christ and we have the right attitude, listen, no chains can be put on you. The chains are broken. We are set free. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ, that Jesus has come, And in his coming, he demonstrates his love for us. In that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that we would now be be called saints. Those that are set apart. Those that have a relationship with Jesus. And because we have a relationship with Jesus... I'm not going to let the enemy put guilt on me. I'm not going to let the enemy try to put shame on me. I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace works effectively in those that believe. That's my attitude this morning. My attitude is to believe that I am what God said I am, that I have been made the righteousness of God in Christ, not because I deserve it, not because I earn it, but because Jesus is beautiful. And Jesus is a Savior who is able to save unto the uttermost. That's what we believe. And that's our attitude this morning.